Do the intro. Now? Do it now. The intro for the uh, Let's Go Eat show? Yeah, do it. Let me... Well, I can't remember who we just talked to. Hang on. Let me look at my... Okay. You look it up. We've, we're, uh, we're doing a series of episodes recently, and we definitely planned it out, and we definitely thought about it, but we're having guests back. Can we plan this? Uh, actually, we hadn't planned it at all. Huh? But yeah. but things, uh, these guests that we've had on recently, uh, most of them have had things in their lives that have kind of changed. Right. And updates. Updates to the yeah. story. And so uh, the guest on this episode of the Let's Go Eat show is former Salt Lake City Police Chief Chris Burbank. Uh, he was a Salt Lake City cop for 25 years. Uh, he was chief of police in Salt Lake City for nine, almost ten years. Mm-hmm. And then... He wasn't anymore. Yeah. <laughs> then he wasn't. All, suddenly, he was... You know, and it was a, a, a... And we don't talk in this episode about his resignation... Uh, much at all. We just get that out of the way in 60 seconds. Because he's doing other things now, and uh, interesting, and he has a lot of good thoughts on uh, policing and government and so forth. But um, it, uh, I, I remember it was a surprise to everyone mm-hmm. when he stepped in front of the cameras uh, and the reporters and said, I, I'm submitting my resignation as chief of police, and 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 it was just it was a surprise nobody because he was so well respected in the community as chief of police and uh, and then he resigned and then it came out the story came out as to some of the reasons that it happened um, and if you want to find out about that just go back and look at the old uh, Google it. it happened a year ago just about a year ago I think it was June mm-hmm. of last year. I think, as I recall. Uh, so just Google Chris Burbank and you can re- refresh your memory about his resignation and why all that happened. Uh, but on this uh, Let's Go Eat show, uh, he has a, a new job and we're talking about that new job. Still involved in matters of policing uh, and he's uh, he travels all over the country and uh, it's a good conversation. And uh, I th- think Chris Burbank will go on to even bigger and better things some uh, someday. Um, He'll run for. I th- I think he should run for office sometime. I do too. Maybe I'll write him in for something. Chris Burbank for mayor of Salt Lake or governor or maybe, president. Uh, you know he should run for the Senate. Yes, he should be a senator. Where it, call and, him back in here. Yeah. Well, that's the, well. We'll call him and suggest he run for Senate from Utah. Uh, but anyway, enjoy it. It's uh, Chris Burbank. It's the Let's Go Eat Show. Oh, please remember to uh, like us on. Right. Follow uh, us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Uh, you can uh, share this podcast with your friends. It's on like all the things: right, iTunes, yeah. Spreaker, Stitcher, Google Play. I use an app on my phone called Podcast Addict. I've never even heard of that. And That's, we're on it? It's a really excellent uh, podcast medium, you know, vehicle to get podcasts. And if you go, if you use their search engine and look for the Let's Go Eat show, it, it's there. Well, I'll be damned. So, there you go. Bye. Uh, anyway, so uh, we're rolling, yeah? yeah. Rolling. Uh, uh, the Let's Go Eat show, it's our old friend Chris Burbank, former police chief of Salt Lake City. Uh, he was a uh, cop here in Salt Lake for 25 years. That's right. Chief for almost 10 years, uh, and then he resigned. And we don't we don't really need to go into all of that. I don't. I, don't. Uh, I think he's been covered plenty over yeah. the past little while. Yeah, I don't. I don't. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I can't hear you, so, Dylan. The reason you design, resigned is probably the reason everybody says you resigned, and we'll move on.
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Fine. And, and yeah. So yeah. it's fine. All right, so now, but you're not over it, now in the first even five even though you look unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or not. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I almost always saw. You. Oh, I ran into you before you uh, left the force. I did run into you once in the grocery store, and I was dressed pretty much like this. Yeah, I think you. Were, you know, I think you were wearing like a weird poncho or something. <laughs> Do you have a poncho? Or I a, don't own a poncho. Or a no. sarap, <laughs> uh, You know, a, a Mexican style. T- or, or I don't know. There was you were wearing something. I thought, man, that guy is really. When he relaxes, he relaxes. Oh, you got to get out of that uniform every once in a while. Yeah, but I, I mean, I was so used to seeing you in the uniform, which you wore well and you look good well, in, and wore proudly. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of and why I wore a uniform always as a police chief is because I was proud, and I wanted my officers to know that I wasn't any different. But I wanted the public to know. Do right? some chiefs not wear? Do oh, some chiefs lot. not wear uniforms? Well, you look back in the history of our department. I mean, that was the big joke with some police chiefs that they didn't own a uniform, that it never came out of the closet. Hmm. And, and I thought, thought that was very important, especially when I went to the community. I, you know, I wore my uniform to an ACLU dinner. Mm-hmm. That needs to be said. I, I, I mean, I was there. That's I, was there. I was there. Yeah, I think yeah. you were. Yeah. And those are the types of things because police officers are no different than anyone in the community. Right? And we are part of that community. And when we do wrong, well, mm-hmm. we're part of that community as well. And we need, that's a little bit of where we've run into problems, the divide that's created between us against them. And it's on both sides of that issue. You, uh, do, you, do you miss being a cop ever? Now, we'll get into your – you are now – you're gainfully employed now. It's not like I am. <laughs> it's not like you're just bumming around saying, somebody give me a job. Uh, uh, do you miss – active policing the excitement of it the challenges of it well what i miss most is because i'd given up the challenge you know as far as the daily interaction on the street 15 years before you didn't have to do that too much what i miss is i miss being relevant in discussions that take place Right. I mean, you saw me stand up when we made mistakes. Hey, we we did wrong. And I stood up and defended issues. I stood up and was against issues. And so I, I missed that opportunity to interact because that's where I thought I, I did a good job. I mean, my skill was going out and interacting with the community and opening up a little bit to that. And you represent part of that. Yeah. I mean, how many chiefs in the past were on your radio show no. other than maybe, you know, Boner of the Week? Yeah, <laughs> I think Ruben Ortega was once, and, and it was because we were at a bicycle safety event, and I talked to him briefly, uh, and and it was not a he was unpleasant even at that event. <laughs> he was just not a pleasant guy. <laughs> I enjoyed being accessible. I like, and I still get it today. I mean, that's the thing that I enjoy most. People come up and tell me what they think, what they feel. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I like being relevant. And so I do miss that to a certain extent. So you, you, but the job you've taken has its own relevancy. You know, let me see if I got this right. Uh, uh, Chris Burbank is director of law enforcement management for the Center for Policing Equity. Is that right? So it's actually law enforcement engagement. Engagement. It, it's, uh, it's in a title. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm working on now is really an exciting project. We, this is a nonprofit research group associated with John Jay University in New York and UCLA in Los Angeles, and we are trying to develop a national database of every time a police officer stops somebody, uses force, writes a ticket, uh, has any interaction with the public so that we can do some comparative analysis and say, hey, you know what? 
five shootings is bad or 25 is bad. Interpretation of all those numbers, right? What's causing it? And the most exciting thing is we just recently published a report, and it was a very preliminary report, uh, of agencies across the nation that showed that, in fact, they were using force disproportionately. There's bias in their use of force. But interestingly enough, that bias, when compared to officer behavior, right, officer, we we study the officers as well, Mm -hmm. right? The bias that is existing in the officers is not representative of the larger bias that is interjected by the institution, Mm -hmm. which is encouraging because you can change policy, you can change practice, right, to start to reduce that bias. It's harder to change hearts and minds. Individuals are very difficult. Yeah. So uh, let's – I think it would shock people to know that there is not a – that there is currently no national crime statistic – database there is nothing like that there's no sharing of data i mean the fbi has certain data uh, we we have certain overall things that say well murder rates in general are up or down but that comes about by people going around and gathering information from individual so there's actually entities, a right? database that uh, the federal government has mandated you report crime to. Okay. Right? So cities of a certain size must report the crime, and that's what you see in the FBI report that's published every year. Mm-hmm. But that's rep- published almost a year after the end of the year, so its relevance is not high. Huh. It, it tells you what we did a year ago. Mm-hmm. What, what we're missing is what is going on each and every day in this community. We cannot tell you how many officer-involved shootings have taken place. How many times has an officer used a taser in order to stop an individual's actions? Right? And then ultimately, how many times are people given tickets? Are they stopped? Are they searched? All these relevant information, especially as it pertains to the bias that exists in the system, that does not exist anywhere in the nation, and that's really what we're trying to create. How, how, why is it... So difficult to create that, and, and, and how are you trying to create it? Well, the difficulty is that it, it all gets wrapped up in some privacy issues. It gets up, wrapped up in, okay, the police don't want to share this information. It's, it sometimes can be damaging to a police agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you start looking at it, uh, and when we were talking earlier, the outcome of the criminal justice system is bias. Nobody can argue that. Right? People of color are incarcerated at a higher rate than anyone else, while all the studies show that they're not committing crime at any higher rate. So where in the system is that bias interjected? And if that is, in fact, law enforcement, my opinion is that needs to be changed, right? That behavior needs to be changed. Now, it could be the courts. I mean, there's a bunch of different things that contribute to that. But what we need to evaluate is what is the contribution of law enforcement to that end outcome that is bias? Well, it's... I mean, I think it would say uh, that people would say who've studied it a little bit that white privilege injects bias into our political and and policing structures at every level. Oh, without question. Yeah. Well, now, and it's it's. I mean, money is a factor, right? So when you say my uh, minorities are not incarcerated, you're right. Yeah. At a at, at a higher rate, you mean people of the same socioeconomic class? Well, it really, when you look at it, whenever in this nation, right, and it goes throughout history and is very relevant now, we label areas as high crime, right? Yeah. We've created, we as society have created this police entity that exists, and we're to blame for it, right? 
we look out our window, we see something that's different, we see something that is alarming, we call the police and say, hey, come deal with this. Right? Violence, misdemeanor, drug, alcohol, mental illness are not criminal justice problems. Those are societal problems. Those are more health problems. Right? We have never solved alcoholism by calling the police and having them take a drunk to jail. Right? Okay. That doesn't right. solve alcohol. But what we've shown, we've demonstrated this, right? When you get them into the social services that they need, right, the counseling that they need, everybody needs a house, a job, food. Uh, these are basic essentials. Health care. Right? Police talk, don't provide that. Talk about your approach to, now I remember when you did this, and it was very controversial when you were chief, your approach to vice in general. What did you do with the Salt Lake City Police Vice Squad? Well, we did away with focusing on the individuals engaged in the act, in prostitution, because they were more often victims of trafficking than they were the actual perpetrators of crime. And so in some cases, you have these individuals that had 25, 30 arrests that are still out on the street doing this, engaging in the exact same behavior. Well, that's not a productive system. No. Right? But when you start looking upstream, who's benefiting from that? It's not the woman or the young boy on the street who's making money from this. It's somebody upstream that's trafficking him. And you start targeting those individuals that are profiting from these poor people. Right? You now solve the problem. You get these people out from underneath the servitude that they find themselves in. That's how you eliminate crime and disorder. Let's talk about uh, what exactly, let's go back to the beginning here a little bit and talk about exactly what the Center for Policing Equity is. What, uh, who, who started it? Why? And, you know, what, give, me, give us a little background in that. So it was started about 10 years ago by a Ph.D. named uh, Philip Atiba Goff. And he did most of his research, undergraduate and graduate work, in implicit bias in systems. And so he started to take an interest in policing. And it's a group that when he decided that this was the direction that he wanted to take his life, I was part of his original advisory council and board Mm. to say, yeah, these are the problems in policing. So if you remember when immigration got to a high point, um, about two years into my uh, tenure as the police chief in Utah, and i very outspoken, right? Right. People are not committing crimes at a higher rate. They're not responsible for all these horrible things that you heard legislators saying, you know, they're, they're rapists and they're trafficking and they're doing all this. And so I actually had Phil and uh, some members of the research team come into Utah, take all the data from the Salt Lake City Police Department. They went out and conducted surveys. And what they found was that, in fact, no, Latino individuals and especially undocumented individuals were under committing crime compared to other races. The, the undocumented, the people who sneak across the border, are committing less crime than just the average white guy walking down Absolutely. the Absolutely. Yeah. So because they're afraid to get... They don't want any they, involvement they with law enforcement. And so they would avoid it like the plague. And so what we found was that that was the case. But also, when you started looking and doing some research into what is the results of this, what we found was, you know, not surprisingly, Latino individuals were less likely to call the police and report crime if they thought we were immigration agents. Mm-hmm. But... Wide individuals in Salt Lake City were less likely, significantly less likely, to report crime to the police if they thought we were going to act as immigration agents and deport some of these people. That is a big statement that needed to be heard, and it it moved it out of the crazy liberal police chief in Salt Lake City to, no, here's some people with some, you know, PhDs, some letters and everything else that are going to come in and say, no, 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 here's what we found. 
So that made it significant. And so you saw studies in Denver about uh, officers' interactions uh, in shootings. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've been uh, responsible for the databases. The the newest project that is interesting was born out of a conversation about three or four years ago that I was involved in. And so they are looking to improve policing from the standpoint of data-driven, here's what we can find and here's what the underlying cause is. The difference is this is not about researchers publishing papers that say, aha, we got you. See, we knew the cops were all biased. No, what our research goes is we give back to the agency, here's what we found, now make some changes on this. This is what our recommendations are. Uh, You said something earlier. You said that there are cops who, you know, there there are policemen, cops around the country who probably have bias you know they're, they're without question yeah. but but that's not as significant as, as if there's institutional bias it's not as significant on the outcome is what we found and so yes the institutional bias is that we send people out and say okay you will police neighborhoods you will police these areas in a certain way oftentimes those take on zero tolerance or mm-hmm. you know we arrest you for everything sort of thing And that's where you start to see the bias interjected into the system. Every single person is made up of their life experience, and sometimes there's bias in that. And to say that police officers have no bias is to say that this nation has no bias, right? right? We all have some biases built into us. What we need to do is see how are those playing out in the outcomes of policing, And if those individual biases or if uh, nationwide biases or system biases are impacting that, well, those are the changes that need to be made. You talk about Black Lives Matter. I would be terribly upset if my child was shot and killed by a police officer unjustified. And you should be. But what we need to move is beyond that anger, right, to how are we going to solve this and make sure that the next person of color is not shot and killed inappropriately. That's where we need to move the discussion, and that's where I think some good data-driven outside of policing, right? This isn't the cops telling you. These are independent researchers. There's about 70 of them across the nation that are involved in the database and, you know, analyzing information. That's how you get to the underlying cause. And then what do you do do for the uh, Center for Policing Equity. What is your exact role? You don't go out and conduct the research. What do you know? Obviously, I am woefully unprepared to do that. My sociology degree from years ago <laughs> has left me short on that one. But, no, what my role is, and that's why the law enforcement engagement, my role is to go out and get law enforcement to participate, to petition legislative bodies, to position Washington, D.C., to set up mandated collection of information. Right? right now, we're in a position that it's voluntary. So you have to go to a police agency and say, give us your information, and this is what we'll give you in return, a very good report on this. And so that's my role is to get the researchers access to the information so that they can actually conduct this analysis and hopefully help to improve policing. Um, let, talk a little bit, if you would, about uh, we were talking about methods of policing and, and um, <clears throat> uh, is it Bradford, uh, the New York City cop? Bratton. Bratton. Bill Bratton. Bill, Bill Bratton. Uh, he's been considered a top name in law enforcement. I think he was in L- he was the top guy in L.A. for a long time. Uh, yeah. well, I think he went from New York to L.A. and then back to New York. Was correct. That right? That's correct. Yeah. And Bill Bratton is, was this opponent, a proponent of stop and frisk. And uh, he, said, he says and he claimed that stop and frisk, that, uh, that, that brought the level of crime down in New York City. Talk about that a little bit. Okay, so uh, first let's look at crime. 
So crime hit a high point, and violent crime hit a high point in the 90s, right? And then as we ended the 90s, we started to see crime decline. Now, that is across the nation. Does anybody know why? Uh, Well, that is what we're trying to get to, Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of people who took credit for it, said this is the reason. But Salt Lake City's crime declined. Los Angeles' crime declined. They didn't engage in stop and frisk, right? So was it stop and frisk that did it, right? Was it a police theory that did it, or was it some other outside? I mean, economics plays a huge role in it. Trust and confidence in policing plays a huge role in it. When someone has the trust and ability to call the police and say, hey, there may be a problem, right? We're not going to hit it with a hammer. We're going to you know, take care of it down here at a lesser level and maybe prevent somebody from getting into that. Well, the old thing is, is we, when you have a bag of hammers, everything looks like a nail. Well, and that's <laughs> a challenge with law enforcement. Yeah. What, what can a cop do when you call him, right? He can show up and he can either walk away from it. Or arrest the person, right? And that could be a citation or going to jail. Other than that, there's not a lot of options for them, yeah. right? Those are the options that we give police, and that's why other individuals in, you know, in a health perspective are better suited to deal with a lot of problems. So then what you have is you don't have one distinct thing. When you look at the efficacy of stop and frisk, it was about 1% of all stops that they made actually resulted in seizures Right or capturing individuals that were responsible for violent crime. So 1% of the time resulted in something effective. 99% of the time was, in essence, hassling the community. You you let them go and they're pissed off. Eroding trust and confidence. Right. So how many times can you stop this person? And then what is the criteria for stopping that individual? Profiling. Well, that's exactly it. Mm -hmm. Right. If you or I walk the streets of New York... Nobody's pulling over and asking us what we're doing in the neighborhood. Nope. Right? And the same thing exists in Salt Lake City. The same thing exists in Los Angeles. And that's what we need to eliminate from policing. We need to look and say, okay, what is our true goal here? But, again, pointing the finger back at society a little bit, we've created this environment where if there's something that looks out of place, right, or suspicious or anything else, we call the police. Well, oftentimes, I mean, what does a terrorist look like to you? (laughs) I don't know. Well, <laughs> I have no idea. And if you think about it, right, if you stereotypically say, okay, it is a Middle Eastern person, uh, 18 to 30 years old, with a beard, with a, a mm. turban, yeah. you know, right, and you start wandering down that road. Now, if you're truly a terrorist, are you going to dress the part so the cops identify you? But those are the types of calls that come into the police that we then respond on. And when we have the outcome of this, and people say, well, why are they upset with us? Well, you have stopped this man 25 times. Yeah. Right? We, we take things to an extreme that in the name of safety, and that is what's most scary. When we, as a society as a whole, sacrifice our civil liberties in the name of safety, right, because we are f- afraid, right? that's the wrong thing to do. Uh, profiling has just been proved to be uh, uh, just very inaccurate and not not beneficial at all. It's completely ineffective. Uh, all you're doing is saying that this race looks like the problem, and so we're going to go deal with it. Now, for some communities, that plays very well, right? And those are the calls that you get. Uh, and this seems uh, rather harsh in the condemnation of the profession. But you look at the homeless population here. 
right? Look at the outcry of, well, there's somebody standing on the street corner in downtown Salt Lake, and mm-hmm. they look out of place, right? Yeah. We don't want them in front of my business or anything else. So we call the police. We move them along. We say we have a homeless problem, and we give more police officers, and we put more police officers in there. That's not solving that problem. That's not giving them a home. That's not giving them a job. The needs that they need in order to stop the behavior, right? That's just taking them to jail. We have arrested people in Salt Lake City 500 times. One individual. Really? The same individual. Now, do you think arrest number 502 or 550 is going to solve this man's problem? <laughs> the guy goes, you know. <laughs> no. And so, but what we've shown, you give them housing, you give them a job opportunity, you give them the health care that they need. Now, it may not solve all their life's issues, but they are no longer a burden on the police department. And it, this is viewed as soft on crime, and this is where I always got hit. Burbank, you're soft, right? Yeah. You're, you're not doing true policing. Come on, well, be no, tough. That is true policing, right? That solves the problem so we don't have to go back. And so if you don't buy into that, just look at the sole economics of this. $99 is the cost of a fully loaded police officer per hour. We send usually two police officers for all those situations. Sometimes we send more. Now, that's not the cost of fire engines and everything else. We looked at 25 individuals. Majority of them are homeless individuals. These were the most frequent users of police service. Cost the city $1 million a year. Imagine the services you could give to those 25 individuals for a million dollars a year that have nothing to do with policing. Send them to college. You could, uh, yeah. I mean, they live better than I'm living. Right? So those are the types of things that we need to look at and say, okay, there's a better way to do business. Right? And it's not what we've done in the past. It's, it's a change in the dynamic that's taking place. And I, I dare say that in doing so, you would start to eliminate some of the bias that exists in our system. Do you know... Um do you know the police chief of Dallas, Texas? I know David Brown very well. Um, he said some pretty interesting things in the um, in the wake of the shooting of his officers there a couple of weeks ago. And he he said, you, you know, you're you, 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 if you protest, that's okay, pro- protest. But what you could really do is sign up and be a police officer. We'd love to have you be police officers. Uh, we need people who want to help solve problems. And he also talked about the asking police to do too much. You know, he said, uh, everything is on the backs of the police. Uh, you know, you, get, you have a dog barking in the neighborhood, you call the police. You have, uh, you know, a, miss, a cat up a tree, you call the police. You ha- there's a, a strange homeless-looking guy in your neighborhood, you call the police. Kids are sloughing school, you call the police. You're asking us to do things that are not really policing but the more the more uh, society uh, seems to depend on us and it's just too much for us to bear sometimes would you agree with that oh absolutely his points were were right on and the perfect example is schools right why do we put police officers in schools because there's a, a a cry from the parents to the district that we need to make the school safe and then the police officer takes the action that they know to be true right we're not putting them in there to be teachers or educators or right they're police officers yeah. well they are not the best tool to interact and then you create a situation where they are constantly viewed in conflict right it is the same thing with public intoxicants, right? If we're always sending the police and you go to jail tonight, we send you on your way or we write you a ticket, right? That person is not, that's not solved. But when you send detox out to them, right, and they say, hey, we have a program. Now, it may take five times, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you what, you can send that detox worker out 
55 times yeah. for the cost of one run of a police officer. Now, that's an exaggeration. But, I mean, it is so much more economical to approach it that way and so much gear, better geared towards results. And so uh, David did himself very proud, uh, as well as Dallas PD. Well, uh, he came uh, across as just great, didn't well, he? Well, he's a genuine guy. I mean, he's one of those – and that's the thing about policing. I mean, I've had the opportunity to travel the world and especially the nation and interact with a lot of tremendous people in law enforcement. And, and there's some that I have no respect for whatsoever, to be honest with you, and there's some that I have – a great deal of respect for and are really trying to improve the situation and do what they can. That's where we as a society need to give them the tools, right? We constantly, and we do that here in Salt Lake. I mean, uh, everything becomes a police problem because you have this ready force, right? Well, sometimes that ready force is not the best equipped to deal with those specific problems. Let's try some other avenues. You're not sociologists. You're not lawyers. No. You're not, so, you're not uh, detox workers. You're cops. You, we are. And the majority of things, like I say, uh, anything to do with drugs and alcohol, except for the illegal distribution, mm-hmm. right, is not a law enforcement issue. That's a health care issue. That, uh, that's a better handled in a health care system and shouldn't even be referred to law enforcement. What's your sense? I know you travel a lot and you uh, you talk to police officers all over the country and, and police chiefs all over the country. Um, and I don't know if you've traveled much since these recent shootings of police officers. And I've been to most of these locations, unfortunately. Since, because since then? Of that, yes. Are, are, are cops, how are they feeling in general? Is there a general mood among police around the country of... Uh, we're targets now, or uh, uh, are, are they feeling um, um, that they should uh, somehow fight back against this? That they uh, do they do they seem to understand what's going on? What's the general mood? Well, unfortunately, I think we see more and more of a, an us against them mentality. Yeah. Right? We start to divide, and and it's kind of what I alluded to earlier that you know the police are a product of society. And we need to give better direction and expectation. We need to give them the proper tools to deal with it. And so there are people, I I hate to make blanket statements because there's some really good people. David Brown, a perfect example. I mean, he could have gone all sorts of different directions after that incident, but but chose to work on healing his particular community. And 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 the people in Dallas have said since he became the police chief, they've seen policing uh, be much better in the, in the city. People are not afraid of the cops like they used to be there. You know. That seems to be the sentiment, and, and that's important and that's significant because that's what it takes, is individuals willing to stand up and participate. I mean, he's also one that shares a lot of information and data. Mm-hmm. And so those are the types of people who are open and willing to say, yeah, I got nothing to hide here. It's, it's an imperfect system that we're trying to deal with. Help me solve the problem. But, again, we get, well, you see the rhetoric now in the political back and forth. It is not a matter of more police that solve the problem. Because going back to that crime thing that we talked about earlier, as crime declined the most, we saw more police officers lose job because of the economic situation, right? There were fewer. One year there were 40,000 fewer police officers than the year before, and crime dropped dramatically, especially violent crime. So it's not a product of how many police officers you have standing around or doing the work. Or how much tactical assault gear you no. you have that you've bought from the federal government. Nope. <laughs> it absolutely is not. Yeah. 
And so there are other things at play here, and those are the things that we need to focus on and change. As uh, right, who we elect into office it needs to be reflective of what we think this direction needs to go for law enforcement in the nation. And again, we're talking about policing specifically, but we but that bias, uh, that institutional bias, is in the courts, and it's in the in governments, local governments, and and uh, regional and federal governments. That bias is there. Well, we've made the mistake. I recently just sat in a very interesting meeting in the White House, and, we, and it was talking about the health care system and the criminal justice system. We look at all this in silos. Well, there's none of those right, that you can look at in a silo. We need to see the interplay between economics, between jobs, between health care, between access to health care, between housing. All these things play into then what crime is committed, how safe a community feels. Right? Those are the types of things that we need to look a little more holistic at as opposed to looking at it in silos. That's a mistake that we make time and time again in all circumstances at all levels of government. I've always felt in Salt Lake City that, uh, uh, for the most part, policing is pretty even-handed and uh uh, i've always you know any interaction i and i've said this to you before any interaction i ever had with salt lake cops even if i've been in the wrong and that happens uh has been i've felt that i've been dealt with fairly and equitably and without malice and i i mean i just think the cops here are generally pretty damn good well I, i don't disagree with you at all i mean that was one of the things that i always said was the most important thing is the individual's officer's integrity and how they dealt with the public and i think rick dinsey was great at that same level of accountability and so i think you've seen several years a number of years that he was uh, the chief right right before, right before me for six years and so i i think you've seen that now we made mistakes i mean i fired a couple officers one of the things that i want to impress upon you and and it's something that you know as i've listened to people and i've heard some of these stories from family members who have lost loved ones to police officer shootings when you look and you say okay right someone commits a crime a homicide in salt lake city very rarely do you ever see the district attorney or the system stand up and say you know what yeah they they committed that crime but i just don't think there's enough to prosecute them and go forward right we've seen that happen with law enforcement officers now if you take that to okay i am a black father that just lost my child in what I think is a biased, inappropriate shooting. With a police officer and, shooting a your child. A police officer shooting my child. And I know that people in my community are routinely held accountable for actions. In fact, routinely held accountable for having a joint in their pocket or jaywalking across the street. And what I see is a terrible injustice. And then I see that time and time again played out in my community and in other communities across the country. It's very hard to stand up and say, yeah, I think the system's working well. And so it is really contingent to look at all these things. I've never been one that says, okay, we need to prosecute police officers. But I had two incidents where I did not believe the officer's actions in a shooting rose to an appropriate level of my expectation. And I fired both of them, right, sent them on their way. Neither one were prosecuted, even though they were found outside the law. Right, and that again, it, it erodes that trust and confidence. It's very difficult. I, I, the people in Baltimore, for instance, must be feeling pretty shitty. You know, uh, Freddie Gray thrown in the back of a police van. Now he ran away. For, he ran from the cops. They chased him down, and then they put him in a van. And then they drive around town for some amount of time, and then Freddie Gray ends up be dying from a severed spine. And six, the six officers involved. Not one 
is being held accountable for that. Uh, where does That's the accountability true. lie? Well, then my question becomes, is the accountability then falls to the police agency, right, that allowed this to happen? Yeah, sure. Right? It's not always the individual officer. It's how we deploy our people. It's what the rules, what the regulations are, what the expectation is. Right? It is more a, a, a system issue it could be, than it, it is an individual so, officer so what, so what you're saying is the officers said, you know, we just we were just doing what we routinely do. Uh, that that our that our uh, administration says this is how you handle things, and that's what we did, and so that's why they're maybe not accountable. Uh, well, it certainly plays into that. I heard I heard the uh, the prosecutor say uh, that they that they want to continue to try try to pursue this somehow. The prosecutors were not happy with the outcome. Uh, it is a difficult system. I mean, it, it is an imperfect criminal justice system, but too often. Right. It is whether real or perceived race plays a significant yeah. uh, portion in what the outcome is. And you can't say that it is fair for everyone who enters the system. And in the case of Freddie Gray, right, he did not deserve to die for what the behavior was that he engaged in. No. Right. And selling cigarettes selling dvds oh the guy in, right i mean you know. yeah we can look time and time again and so you look at this instance and you say it's wrong it's right okay what i want to know is why are we sending a police officer out to a person who routinely sits at a 7-eleven and sells dvds right or somebody in new york city who's selling cigarettes yeah why is that a police issue and and, and these those two individuals had been doing it for a long time for a long time and people there was never a problem there never seemed to be a problem and, and so why then does it become a police issue yeah. those are not best handled by police officers that it's not and so again society the system has created an avenue to where a negative interaction potentially is going to take place and so we need to ask ourselves not only all right what are the officers actions there and hold them accountable but also how is the system accountable for this? How are the people who called and complained about this accountable for introducing this? Right? We need to change expectation of policing. Uh, what do you What do you say uh, when people say uh, that uh, uh, they say, "Well, you know, Black Lives Matter," and people then some then people go, "Well, you know, all lives matter." Uh, and the challenge that I have with that is what you see is a, an outcome that is biased. Right. And so people of color, black individuals are being unfairly or uh, mm -hmm. biasly no. bi impacted. And they're not saying they're not saying by saying black lives matter. They're just saying, well, look, our, our black lives matter. That's all we're saying. We're not saying that your life doesn't matter. We're just we need to recognize that any time a citizen of this country or not, right? I'm not just limiting the citizen. Now, the person who is here mm -hmm. or a police officer has force used against them or dies because of their involvement with one another in this experiment that we call democracy, mm -hmm. that is a failure of our system, right? And we need to work to improve that. That is a failure of the system. We don't send police officers out to kill people. We don't raise our children mm -hmm to commit homicide and so we need to change whatever it is that's causing that and stand up and say yeah that is not appropriate have there been more uh, you're, you're you know you probably have the statistics or know them uh have there been more uh officer involved shootings resulting in homo uh, death 
No, uh, it, it's, it, a, it's about the same. Really, it is about it? the same. Yeah, it, it, it hasn't increased dramatically. I think what you've seen, though, is the increase of visibility of these things. Yeah. And, oh, uh, cell phones. And, yeah. I mean, and that, uh, again, is alarming in and of itself because the system needs to be, there needs to be the checks and balances in the system. I mean, you've heard me go on and on about officer cameras and things mm-hmm. like that. And so I just think you are seeing more of that played out in the public and this is again where good statistical data is so important because i i read a study the other day that talked about the number of times that individuals in police custody need medical assistance and the number of time officers need medical assistance well it didn't take into account at least not that i could see in reading through it that well people have heart attacks people are injured there's car accidents and everything else that they require medical assistance and so it's a skewed step we need good statistical information about every time a police officer stops you did they ask you to search what was the reason for it did they use force and what was the outcome of it what is the efficacy of that effort which is highly significant as far as the economic cost goes but also highly significant on the impact on communities and that's where we need to change our behavior and start looking Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, guns and gun control and that's that's just a big Uh, i have got more death threats from gun topics than i have anything else in life (laughs) (laughs) i'm happy to talk i think we talked about it before but uh let's let's just kind of go over it uh uh you know the uh, mass hmm? Sorry, you you get you've got more death threats when uh, when I have spoken out against guns, the number of death threats that it came into the police chief's office was <laughs> just went through the roof. And a lot of them were good gun owners, you know, who said, "Yeah, I'm going to come kill you because you dare try and take my gun away." So, so you you are in favor of some kind of gun control. I am, and let me tell you why. Because what you have, and you're not the only police chief. There are a lot of police chiefs who say. Please get some of this shit off the streets. No, I, I represented the major city chiefs. Six of us went and talked to the president before he put out his issue on gun, uh, you know, legislation on gun control. The outcome is you have individuals who intend to harm or kill other people who have access to firearms. I don't care where you are on this issue. That is the case. That is a true fact. And we need to somehow prevent that from happening. And where I equate this is, so thankfully I never lost an officer except to their own hand while I was the police chief for 10 years. And I lost three. Who who took their own lives. Took their own lives with their own firearm. Mm -hmm. And... It had to do with an event that took place, a traumatic event. You combined, not every time, but alcohol, alcohol. and there was a gun readily available, right? It was the, if I could have just separated those three things, even for a half hour, a couple of those individuals would be alive today. And so what we have to do is we have to recognize that guns play a role in this, that access to firearms. We have limited Right? For years and years. You can't go buy a machine gun. You need to go register and do that. Now, it doesn't prevent you from doing that, but there's a background check. There's a process, and then you can buy a fully automatic weapon. I could buy a machine gun. You could. It, it would take some effort, but I could do but it. But you could still do that. Right? So we have in place processes that for years and years, because as a police chief, I had to sign off on those. Mm-hmm. Right? That you could own and purchase firearms. Mm-hmm. Right? I you look at the AR-15 debate that is taking place right now, and it does not need to be fully automatic. I mean, that's 
that is irrelevant That's, in this they debate. They still shoot plenty damn fast. Yeah, plenty damn fast. Bam, 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 as fast as you can pull the trigger. But I have never, now I'm going out on a limb here, but I've never heard a story where someone has defended their life with their AR-15 and saved the day. But I've heard lots of stories where someone with an AR-15 has just randomly shot and killed individuals, including police officers. And for us to say that that is not an issue or a problem is wrong. Yeah. And, I mean, statistically, right, if, if your gun is fired at somebody, it's like almost never for defense. It's always an accident or... It is. You will always have advocates who say, oh, yeah, you know, it's for defense, it's for everything else. And I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't see that. But, I mean, I, I will give, concede mm-hmm. that point. Right, because I'm not right. If you are a good lawful citizen who applies, gets a permit, has some education, and everything, I don't care if you carry a gun. Right, as long as you are responsible in how you own it. But what I do care is that people who intend to harm somebody, and if you were one of those people that fell in that category, then you should not have access to it. And we ought to put in place laws and rules and regulations to at least limit. You will never prevent. Right? I mean, that's pie in the sky that we're going to prevent all these. But you can certainly limit that. Uh, so, so the kind of regulation making it a little more difficult to own a firearm, and and it's it's harder to get a driver's license. A much more difficult than to get a driver's license. Get a permit to own, to carry a gun. To well, in this state, my United States passport does not qualify as enough documents to get me a driver's license. Yeah, right. Now, yeah, right. But I can walk in and purchase a gun with a lot less. Yeah. Uh, no. So so background checks. Uh, and limiting uh, access to certain kinds of weapons, and uh, uh, all, and also the uh, mental health component of of this is pretty uh, important as well. It's very important, and, and I will argue that anyone who intends to kill many many people has mental health issues, whether they've seen someone or not. And that is a little bit of the challenge that you have when you start wandering down this road because, okay, what constitutes mental health? You visited a psychiatrist or psychologist one time, you're on medication, you're diagnosed. I mean, where do you start to draw that line? But at least we should have the discussion, right, about where that line should possibly be for access to firearms. It's interesting that the, uh, a lot of people would say that the gun violence in America is a public health issue. Uh, and the Center for Disease Control uh, studies those kinds of things, but they, uh, I, and are you aware of this? They, oh, I, I'm very they, aware. <laughs> they have, were prevented by a, a piece of legislation that was sponsored by the National Rifle Association. I think it's called the Dickey Amendment or Dicker Amendment or something <laughs> like that. This congressman who got it passed that forbids the Center for Disease Control to study gun violence as a public health issue. Why would we ever prohibit somebody from studying an issue That's and giving just, us a conclusion? It's astonishing, isn't it? <laughs> it's just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there is a report that I think will be coming out shortly, and I won't give any names or anything, that is going to show that black males, the age of, I think, 18 to 35, the number one cause of death is gun violence. That is horrible. Well, and Jesus. see, and then people will say, "Well, that, that's a brutal, uh, thuggish population." Yeah. That's a, and it's a uh, that is not true. And <laughs> you know, people who say, "You know, black uh, black on black violence," it's that it's you know who's killing black people? It's other black people mostly. Black on black violence, and they 
they, they don't understand that you can also say, guess who kills most white people? That's right. Other white people. <laughs> It, it holds true. Yeah. I mean, it is where you find yourself in proximity. Yeah. And that is the unfortunate thing. It's just such to a, the segregation that exists in society. It's such a stupid comment. You know, well, it's black on black violence. That's a horrible thing. It, How about violence, that white on white violence? Well, There's way more white on white violence. Well, you look at the mass shootings that have taken place. How many of those are individuals of color? The perpetrators of those crimes. Yeah. I mean, it's the other thing that is astonishing is. Each and every day, on average, about 450 people lose their lives to violence in this country. Every day, that many people lose gun, their lives. Gun violence? Not all just, gun violence. Just, just, just violence in general. A good portion of that is gun violence, but not all of it. Mm-hmm. That is the biggest problem that I can see facing law enforcement in this nation today. And yet we are worried about... How many people are drinking in public or how many? I mean, these are the types of things that we need to look at and address and change the behavior. And a lot of that has to do with access to firearms, lack of mental health issues and everything else. We don't see that in cities in Canada, in other places in the world. In fact, the Canadians used to laugh at us when we'd go meet with them. I mean, Montreal, a city of three million people, had fewer homicides than the city of Salt Lake. Yeah. Right. That just right. There's got to be somebody who stands up and says, yeah, it plays a role. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not an end all, but it plays a role. Well, you know, uh, Chief Burbank, there was a guy in Japan just uh, this week. He killed 19 people with a knife. You're aware of that, aren't you? Well, so, did you, know, you see how rare they had to go back to that sarin attack for the last time that that had taken place in Japan? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's people who say, well, if, they, if they're hell-bent on killing somebody, it doesn't matter whether they have a gun or not. They'll do it. You know, just, well, but that's where we just need to address. There's lots of issues and problems out there. And if we can limit, right, if tomorrow I could prevent one individual from dying I'd say that was a success. And I'll tell you what, if I could prevent 12 individuals from dying tomorrow, absolutely, I'd do everything I could to do that. You caught a lot of flack in Salt Lake City when you said that, uh, uh, well, you caught a lot of flack for many things. (laughs) (laughs) Although, you know, I think uh, it is true that you were uh, probably, at the time of your resignation, uh, one of the most popular police chiefs Salt Lake had ever had. And that must make you feel good. What makes me feel good is when people come up and tell me how much they appreciate me. I mean, I, and it's, it is people, Bill, that have no reason to do that. Walking through Costco, mm-hmm. right? I get a kiss on the cheek from somebody who says, thank you very much for all you've done. They, uh, they're not looking for anything. All they want to do is reach out. That means so much to me. You, uh, you caught a lot of flack for your, uh, as I recall, you said on immigration, you said, I'm not going to have my police officers be immigration agents. And you, you refused to... I would have gone to jail over that one. Yeah. Was, was there, uh, I mean, was there some kind of chance of that? <laughs> well, there was a clause written in legislation at the state right. that they called the Burbank Bill mm-hmm. that said a police chief that didn't do this was in violation of the law. Yep. Now, well, I didn't make it through, thankfully, mm-hmm. but that's uh, uh, the wrong thing to do. Yeah. What, the, that, did that dictate? That uh, that directive came from our state legislature Correct. that wanted wanted you to kind of be more of an immigration agent. Your police is to be more of immigration agents. And- yeah, I mean, it was very similar to the Arizona bill yeah. that had come up. Yeah, 
Yeah, and you just refused to do it. And, and, and no. what is the, what's the status of all of that in Salt so, Lake now, do you know? Uh, well, to this day, as far as I know, Salt Lake City officers have never acted as immigration agents. And I'm very proud of that. And they still have the kind of attitude of, you know, it's really none of our business whether you are documented or undocumented. Our business is what the situation is here in the community. It's very similar. Bill, did you fill out line 1099E correctly on your tax form this year? I, I don't know. I guess I have a guy right. do it, so it probably. It matters not. Yeah. Right? If you're a good citizen contributing to the well-being of Salt Lake City, you should not be hassled by the police. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, uh, what people should do uh, in relationship to the police in their everyday lives. Um, you know, how, it, People get stopped by the police, They get uh, they get or they call the police, or um, what... Can you give people tips on what ensures a good interaction with police? You know what I, you know what I mean? What's I don't know. It's an interesting dynamic, and I'm no different than anyone else, right? I mean, when the lights and sirens come on when I'm driving down the street, I'm, you kind of get a little nervous, right? Is that for me, right? Mm-hmm. Am I? Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the things that I think is so important is uh, right, arguing your point with the police officer is never going to result in anything positive at that moment, Mm -hmm. right? If you disagree with what's taking place, and I always told people this, and it applied wholeheartedly in Salt Lake City, and I hope it still does, and it should apply everywhere. If you feel you've been unfairly stopped, you ask for a supervisor. Hey, would you mind having a supervisor come? And you explain this is what it is, and you've got it on record, right? And the supervisor documents it. And then if they're going to issue you a ticket, you take the ticket, and then you go fight it. I mean, you can contact internal affairs. You can you know, fight it in court. There's a bunch of different remedies in order to do that. But the avenue is to just get somebody else there to document it. And, and you can do that if a police if police pull you over. You certainly have you, the right to ask. Now, you're going to get agencies that are going to say no to that, I'm mm-hmm. sure, across the nation. You're going to get, well... I look at anyone enforcing highway. I mean, if you're in the middle of Wyoming and you ask, you know, a, a trooper, hey, will you get your supervisor? Well, that supervisor may be an hour and a half away. No. <laughs> so it may not be feasible. But ask the questions. Be respectful. Why do I need to do this? Mm-hmm. And the most important thing, and it's funny, I used to go speak a lot. I still do to high schools and uh, colleges. And the number one thing is know what the Constitution is. No one you can tell a police officer no. When can you tell a police well, officer no? You have the right, if they ask to search your person, to search your home, to search your vehicle, to say no. Now, if they have probable cause to do that, there's an exception, and they can, in essence, do that. Well, I was once, well, I was once told by an officer, can I search your car? And I said, I'd rather you didn't. And he said, well, if I don't do it now, I'll impound your car. And you'll be spending the night at the police station. That would be unconstitutional. <laughs> right? So that's one of those times you were not treated. Hopefully that wasn't a Salt Lake City No, officer. that was down That was down <laughs> in uh, Iron County. And it was, uh, what was that guy's name who was the police uh, sheriff? Oh. They had Duke or something. Yeah, I can't remember. But they, had yeah. a lot of, they had a lot of problems with the, as it turned out. I didn't know it at the time. But they had a lot of problems with policing down there for a while. And, yeah. So say no. Hmm. Right? And this... One of the things that I, I think is humorous. He searched the car, by the way, and found nothing. Uh, yeah, of but course. I just, I but didn't, I, he shouldn't search it. No, I didn't right? want him to. Well, the funny thing is, right, the Constitution is not there to hinder police work. The Constitution there is to provide a framework for how to conduct police work. And you follow the rules. Mm. 
And then if, in fact, the rules are followed and everything else, then it results, if it does, in a good arrest and everything else. And so the idea that you want to subvert the Constitution or somehow coerce somebody into saying yes, uh, you know, no. No one you can say no to people. Ask questions. Why did you stop me tonight? Mm -hmm. Right? What do you need? Do I have to submit to that? And and understand that. You would be amazed how many people don't understand what their constitutional rights are. Do you have to have ID on you? No. Not in the state of Utah. Only if you're driving a vehicle. You do have to have your driver's yeah, well, license it, with you. Yes. The, the law still reads that you have to have it on your person, even though they can check it on the computer and everything else. There is a separate statute yeah, that says you have to have it. Because I know some places you can just say, oh, I forgot it. I don't have it with me. And as long as you have a valid one, it's... That's a reasonable thing. And most officers, Mm -hmm. when they look and say, oh, yeah, it's valid or everything else. Mm -hmm. But, no, you don't need to carry ID to walk down the street. There's nothing that obligates you to. And that is the beauty of America. Mm -hmm. Right? And I don't ever want to get to the point where I have to prove my citizenship. Show me me your papers. Yep. Yeah. Uh, No. absolutely. And that was one of the most scary things that I ever encountered in the immigration debate is when people said, oh, I don't mind carrying that around all day and showing it if anyone asks me. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I want the right to go to Disneyland without having to demonstrate I'm a citizen before I enter California. Yeah. That's yeah. what America's about. Yeah. Uh, do you have to... What Now, there was some question I remember uh, when uh, the police approached Freddie Gray and he ran. Uh, so I, th- I think I heard some people saying, there's no law that says you can't run. There, in most states, there is not a law that says you can't run. Mm-hmm. Right. But where it becomes gray issue in most circumstances and in the state of Utah is if I have a lawful right to detain you. So if I have probable cause to believe that you've engaged in criminal activity and you run, then I have the right to chase you mm-hmm. right, in order to stop you from evading my arrest of you or uh, mm-hmm. detainment of you. And so that is a very fine line. But uh, right, walking down the street... Unless that rises to the level of that, you don't even need to talk to a police officer if they. So you you just kind of need to know, and that's where you. Again, civil society, right? Mm-hmm. I used to always say hi to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, my favorite thing to do was walk the streets of Salt Lake City in your city, uniform. In my uniform, say hi to people. I mean, the homeless people all knew me by name. Scream, hey Burbank, and how are you doing tonight? What's going on? You got somewhere to stay tonight? And those things. All right, civil dialogue is where we need to be. That oftentimes we've forgotten. Right, when someone asks you for money, it doesn't mean that they're going to assault you because of that. Yeah. And you have the right to say, no, I'm not going to give you any tonight. Good luck to you, though. Mm-hmm. Which is what the advocates for the homeless say you yeah. should do, is not no, really not give them any money. And so, well, there's better avenues to donate. And then you know your money's not going towards drug or alcohol addiction and some of those other things. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you give somebody a dollar, that's where it goes. But that certainly plays into it. And so there's better avenues in order to give your money. But, again, also, it's, it's about a civil dialogue. Police officers should be no different. But my expectation of a police officer is that they return that, or, in fact, they're the ones up front who start that dialogue. When you walked around saying hi to people, did you sometimes get back? What did I what? Uh, Oh, no, what no, no. All, all over the map. What did I do? <laughs> all over the map. Yeah. And, but again, what do you mean by hi? <laughs> well, what? My favorite one. I stopped a man driving a very expensive sports car up Brewery Hill, going way too fast. 
And it took a lot to get the police chief to, to pull you over, right? Mm-hmm. But he was he hit that point. Mm-hmm. Pulled him over, walked up to the car and said, hello, sir. And he looked at me and he said, you're the police chief, aren't you? And I said, yes, and you were driving so bad that I had to stop you. <laughs> and then I told him to slow down and be on his way. But, I, no, it was, again, that is what I miss about policing. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I liked being the police chief yeah. and what it represented and what I thought a police chief should be. Do you think you'll ever go back into policing? Well, so that's an interesting question. So about... I would assume you've been approached by other cities. Oh, I was. Well, three years before I resigned, I had a lot of different people approaching and asking about Mm -hmm. things. And and I looked very seriously. I mean, some were large cities with a great deal of money involved and, you know, prestige and everything else. And what I found was that the problems that existed were very similar. Right. If you had a big city, you had more of the same problems. If you had a little city, you had less of the same problems. And I felt like my change in impact in Salt Lake City had a lot to do with my experience growing up in Salt Lake City, in the police department and everything else. And so I decided uh, probably about three years before that, you know what, I, when it came to an end, I wasn't going to go into policing. Right. Whenever Salt Lake City you know, was done, I was going to work in an area that I could be a little more vocal. Mm-hmm. And that's partly why I chose a nonprofit group. I mean, I can say and participate in areas that uh, you know, yeah. are wide open and what I want to pick and choose and what, what I think is important. What about political office? I don't know. I still keep People getting... People have a, probably asked you to do that, too, haven't they? Have, they have. Um, I, so the hardest thing that I have is I don't know that I could be completely Republican or Democrat. Mm-hmm. I always made decisions on what I thought was best for the police department and the citizens of Salt Lake City. And that was on all sides. I mean, if you remember with, uh, my position on immigration, right, all mm-hmm. the liberals loved me on mm-hmm. that one. Yeah. Right? And the conservatives hated me. Well, when we had a, an officer involved, dog shooting, right? Oh, poor I Christ. was vilified by, you yeah. know, and the other side. But again, what I viewed as the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I th- that's what my expectation, that's what I look for in a politician is somebody who does the right thing and mm-hmm. is not just down the line on any of these issues. Because I think if you talk immigration, guns, healthcare, I mean, you just go down the list, right? The good in the country, both past and present, is found in the compromise in the middle, not being one side or the other. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the the mayor of Salt Lake is a, a technically a nonpartisan position. Oh, I have position, been approached about that one several yeah. times. Yeah. Well, so uh, for now, it's uh, you are the, uh, with the, let me get it right. Well, you just say it. Uh, so. <laughs> I am the director of law enforcement engagement for the Center for Policing Equity. If people are uh, interested in uh, interacting with you and interacting with that nonprofit, uh, there, I know there's a website. There is, policingequity.org. And there's a lot of, inv- I just glanced at it briefly. Lots of good information yeah. and yeah, ways, avenues to contact me. And so I'd be happy to, you know, discuss issues or ideas. We are always looking for avenues and, and especially good people to kind of participate. The nice thing is this work is growing, right? It's sad that there is a need for this type of work. But mm-hmm. we have a lot of interest and we want to push it out and get every nation or every city in the nation involved in this. I think we would go a long way if we had a standard set forth that this is what policing is. Then you can say you're good, you're bad, 
or here's how you can change. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's really uh, uh, always great to talk to you and see you. And um, uh, just just when I see you on the street or we interact socially a little bit at various functions and stuff, it's always a pleasure. I mean, just, you know. Well, I one of the best things I did as a police chief was come on your show. You, <laughs> No, I'm serious. You laugh at that. It gave me access to an audience that was important to what I was doing. And I never viewed the media in any way, shape, or form as an adversary. They were always my adversary. You all are the vehicle for me to stand up and give you what my opinion is about law enforcement. And that was important and very valuable. So I do appreciate the access and the continued access. Sure. Uh, We'll have you back on this podcast. And any time you think that there's an issue that you want to discuss on the morning show, on the Radio From Hell show, please feel free to do that as well. well. Thank you much. Yeah, just contact us, and you know we, we'll always make room for you. No, it's always a pleasure. Chris Burbank, former chief of police of Salt Lake City, now with the policing equity. <laughs> so close, yeah. so close. I, I wrote it down. <laughs> policing, wait, no, wait, let me do it this time. I know I've got it right here. He's... It's the Center for Policing Equity. That is correct. Uh, and, it, and the website is? PolicingEquity.org. All right. Uh, thanks a lot for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, thanks, Dylan, for producing the show. My pleasure. Uh, thanks, uh, 50 West, for uh, providing us a space to do it and um, some French fries and, and uh, Diet Cokes and the like and uh, iced tea. And uh, that's it. I'm Bill Allred. Remember, if you're pouring the drinks, always make mine a double.